0: Yeah, But um, honestly, this is a long time coming. This is a lot of fun um, for us to be able to do this kind of thing. We haven't done this in forever. Um, and we've been just kind of kicking around ideas for a little while now. And this is our way of trying to, I guess, I mean, it, it's an old quote, but it's being a nuance more nuanced in the noise of the world. I mean, and everything is, I mean, quite frankly, gotten crazier in the last couple of years. <laughs> like the the hits just keep on coming when it comes to chaos inducing things, right? Like you'd think we'd get a breather post pandemic and yet here we are with not so much.
1: <laughs> ranking which is pretty wild. Yes.
0: Yeah. It's been nonstop
1: for our generation. I mean, it's been yeah. 9-11, um, the longest war in American history, economic collapse in 2008. Yep. Jeez, uh, I mean, COVID. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> every time it thinks like,
0: it's like, it'll be smooth sailing from here on out. And then it's not. <laughs> no, and also,
1: whatever we, th- who was it? I th- okay. Forget his name. At the end of uh, the Cold War, he said, "This like this is the end of history." Uh, that was mm-hmm. right. <laughs> history never ends. History is a <laughs> series of catastrophes <laughs> that we just keep recovering from. That yeah. this has become extraordinarily uh, evident in the last
0: few years? Yes, I mean you'd have to be foolish to think that like, it's one of the things I always think about whenever you hear people talking about history or what we expect to happen or things like that. And it's always like, well, every generation thinks they're in the most chaotic or in the, you know, you pick whatever it is. Everyone feels like they're in the chaos of it all or the, the end of the world, whatever. Um, like even just thinking back since like World War Two, we had World War II happened and they were the greatest generation because they, you know, showed up and served and whatnot. But then you had the Vietnam War show up after that. And then it was like all the chaos that evolved in that area. And then we had our thing with the 9-11 and the chaos that ensued from that. So it's just like this, to me, it's just a never ending just ball that rolls and you mm. It, it only looks like it's stable or better than it is today when you are have like distance from it.
1: Yeah, the stability, I think, is an illusion. And I think that, that that's being aided by the psychological distance that's being um, sort of uh, exacerbated by, I think, the Internet. what's gone on Mm. is that we sit here and spend all this time online. um, But online is kind of a little or no obvious consequence that it's so abstract that any consequences it has are way down the line. It's not so obvious. Everything seems like entertainment just because you're watching it on a screen. I was actually at a, um, they have like brown bag seminars, what they call them. They're just uh, brown bag. You bring your lunch. In over an hour, some professor talks about their research, right, okay. um, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, there's a woman who's a developmental psychologist, and she was talking about uh, you sit a kid down with their mom, and then you do what's called like a false belief task or um, just to try to get a sense of the kid's theory of mind. So somebody will come in in the next room, uh, and or two people will, and then one person will leave, and then they'll hide the toy that the both of them were playing with. And then you kind of ask the kid, Hey, when that person comes back, where are they going to look for that toy? And if the kid has an understanding of the other person's mind, if that kid can take the perspective of that person that walked out of the room before it was hidden, then they'll say, Oh, well, they're not going to know exactly where to look, or they'll say they're, they're going to look where they last saw it. But young kids will say, (laughs) we'll just say they're going to look for exactly where it is not being able to understand that that person doesn't know that that's where that thing is. (laughs) Right. So yeah, just to make it a touch more concrete. um, If me and you are in a room, this kid's watching and we both have a ball, we're throwing it back like a baseball, we're throwing it back and forth. And then I put it down on the table and you walk out and then I take the ball and I put it under um, underneath the table Uh, then a kid who knows, who can put himself in your perspective would say that you would look on top of the table, but the kid who doesn't or is unable to take your perspective, who can only have their own perspective, will say you'll look under the table despite the fact you would have no idea that that's where it would be, right? Um. So you run that test, and then you do that test on screens or not on screens, right? So to what degree is a computer screen making or a television screen making this Uh, adjusting the way that the kid thinks. And so the kid (laughs) actually performs worse, performs worse with the screen. And it seems, and it doesn't seem to be a perceptual issue. They work this Mm -hmm. out in a few different ways. What they think is going on is that when the kid looks at the screen, they don't believe it's real. (laughs) That All this kind of different thing. We're just watching TV here. Right. So, um, there's a little – that's a touch of evidence for the idea that what we're doing uh, or what's, what's occurring – might be occurring uh, is that as we spend more and more time online looking at screens, we think that these screen things, this world, is an unreal world. And then um, we don't believe – as a result, don't believe it's of any real consequence. And so we're watching all the craziness that's going on out there and in the world,
0: world.
1: (laughs) like I should be listening to the news. I should be seeing these arguments on Facebook and Twitter. I should be um, looking at January 6th or whatever it happens to be in such a way that when it occurs, when I come into contact with it, I adjust my actions to incorporate that in because that thing is of consequence. It's significant. I need to change my behavior now that I have that new information, right? But instead of what we're doing is just thinking that, oh, it's all BS. It's all out there. It's nothing that I say on Twitter really matters. Nothing that I do online really matters. And I can't help but think that that bleeds into our day-to-day lives, that people are interacting with each other now as if they're unreal things on a screen, that they've been practicing this certain level of fakeness for so long that they can't divorce their experience from it anymore. And even though they know consciously that this is real, like no one would ever, if you ask them, say that this is bullshit, they experience it as not of any consequence. And that contributes to the meaning crisis that guys like John Verveke talk about.
0: Yeah, we should do a Uh, podcast on just his stuff uh, down the road (laughs) before we derail ourselves on the actual (laughs) (laughs) topic, but it's, it's related for sure.
1: Yeah, and this actually, so this all brings us to what the purpose of this live stream is, right? Because we were talking a little bit and I was thinking that a lot of, books that i hope people could understand that have been impactful for me or i've admittedly have difficulties understanding i found that in trying to or in talking about the book with another person uh just reading through a paragraph or something um i could remember it better it was more Mm accessible in that way uh made two heads are better than one right in that for many people myself included now we don't quite have someone to do that with, so you might want to access some philosophy book. It's a little bit dense, um, but because of its density, it's hard to break into, and so yes. this might be a way of making things a little more uh, accessible, right? To
0: just, yeah. I mean, we're ba- we're effectively doing like a, a book club, or if you have like an idea. I mean, we've done, we did this before. Like, this is why we started podcasting way back when is we used to just go to the bar and we yeah. talk about the ideas we were exploring either from books or podcasts or whatever medium we were happening to get them from. And we would find that we were getting way more out of them just from talking with each other.
1: Right. Yeah. I, yeah, we would, I can remember going to Bulldogs and talking about like consciousness mm-hmm. or something with a group of us.
0: Yeah, we're like six of us. <laughs> I miss Hilariously. that. And, and that's
1: hard. <laughs> I, I feel very out of practice that it's been so long thanks to COVID. Um, yeah. And for many other reasons, obviously, I moved to Nashville. Um, since I've had the opportunity to really sit down and talk about these interesting things.
0: Yes. So with that being said. The- yeah, the reason for this preamble was just to get make it accessible to other people that this is not something you have to be, quote unquote, in school for or whatever.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, and and that it could be that in un- coming to understand these books and these philosophies and whatever it happens to be, um, that frames all of the craziness that's going on now. Mm-hmm. Right, it helps frame it. Um. So, in so one one way to or to make things hopefully or maybe to shock us into um oh. considering our present moment a little bit more, the book is <laughs> *Imperfect Greatness: Why Civilizations Fail* by William. We're
0: ripping the bandit off on our first live stream.
1: <laughs> yep. So I'm on William. I think it's Ophuls or offals, o p h u l um, website. Um, just a quick biography. It's actually, William Offels is actually the pen name of Patrick Offels. Served for oh, eight years of the Foreign Service officer in Washington, Ab- Abidjan. I don't know where that is. Uh, in Tokyo, before receiving a PhD in political science from Yale, uh, after teaching briefly at Northwestern, he became independent scholar and author. Published three books on the. Ecological, social, and political challenges confronting the modern industrial civilization. So that's him. And the cool. book, again, is Immoderate Greatness Why Civilizations Fail. Uh, this was actually recommended to me <laughs> by, not to me, to everyone, by Ian McGillchrist in a podcast I heard recently. So I picked it up. Okay. It's pretty short. It's only, um,
0: I think like, it's only like 80 pages or something or nine. Oh,
1: Tell
0: when, yeah. when you were explaining some stuff to the milgol crest came to mind myself too i was just listening to a podcast so summarizing one of his ideas he'd be another interesting one oh, we're yeah. going to tangent him a lot yeah, i mean
1: <laughs> yes he would be an interesting one i would have to pick out some very select stuff because um his books are very long
0: <laughs> yeah i mean we could easily just pick like one topic just spitballing for future idea things, so we're yeah. not spending. You know,
1: he, he organized so the master and his emissary. He organized really well, so um, we could even say it's all about the hemispheres of the brain. We could be like, what's a particular topic like theory of mind that we might be interested in knowing the differences in the hemispheres on this, and just go through that piece, you know, something like that. Yeah, that'd be cool. Okay, okay so to I'm me.
0: gonna
1: I'm gonna go ahead and start here. Um, it's the first chapter. Uh, page nine is what I'm looking at here. Um, So we're not going to start from the beginning. We're going to kind of try to move forward, get a, maybe a page or so. Yeah. Okay. That works for me. As a process, civilization resembles a long running economic bubble. Civilizations convert found or conquered ecological wealth into economic goods and population growth. As the bubble expands, a spirit of, irrational exuberance reigns. Few take thought for the morrow or consider that they are borrowing from posterity. Finally, however, resources are either effectively exhausted or no longer repay the effort needed to exploit them. As massive demand collides with dwindling supply, the ecological credit that has fueled expansion and created a large population accustomed to living high off the hog, is choked off. The civilization begins to implode in either a slow and measured decline or a more rapid and chaotic collapse. Okay. So that's paragraph one of this. Man, <laughs> That makes a couple sense, right? It's you have a finite number of resources. You start to expand the things that you're expanding, you're, the technologies you're building, the the architecture, the number of people that you have are all expanding uh, in a way that's predicated on those resources, right? You have so many mouths you need to feed. You better have the food to feed them. But once the food starts to run out,
0: well, now right. they start to drop off. I, I think a good analogy here is like if you can imagine a like a really big river, right? And say you dammed that at the beginning, so all the way down here, but – Everybody lives all the way down at the very end of that river, right before it goes to the ocean.
1: Hmm.
0: It's going to take a certain amount of time before that river dries up and people realize it's a problem. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what civilization collapses. Like everything can kind of exist for a while, but then there's a point where, oh, wait, (laughs) we've got a fundamental problem here.
1: Yeah, you're actually (laughs) dead walking at a certain point. You just don't know it. Yes. Right. It's like we've run out already. You just don't know that you've run out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, continuing on. As civilizations encounter emerging limits, they will, of course, make every effort to innovate their way around them. However, as we shall see later, these efforts themselves have costs that gradually accumulate. Thus, the civilization's indebtedness compounds. Unfortunately, the benefits accrue immediately, but the debts come due only later. So the momentum of development continues. However, at some point, service on the accumulated debt begins to preclude new investment as more and more energy has to be expand, expended, simply running, running in place. Okay, so that's a um, compounding indebtedness as you try to create innovations. Um, you, right, you create new technologies to deal with the problems that are now emerging but those mm-hmm. those technologies themselves have a debt. So while it seems to, for a time, delay the inevitable, um, it's actually compounding. It's making things
0: worse. Yeah. It kind of reminds you of that. the, I think it's an Einstein quote, of no problem can be solved at the level of consciousness that created it. And so it's like people come up with these ideas that are kind of more like Band-Aid fixes. It's like, rather than going to the root cause, you're just like, <laughs> well, let's just, do it this way instead. And then you realize that that really doesn't solve anything until it's too late.
1: That's a scary idea, right? It's it's like, Oh, we messed that up really bad. <laughs> Let's just not go to the root cause and just keep adding more and more band-aids on top of
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this stuff you can kind of like, when you look at civilization level, I'm, I'm going to just, kind of tangent a little bit, but when you look at civilization level, it can feel so big that for like any one of us, this is such a huge problem that how do you fix it, right? Like the, the individual impact each of us can make is really difficult. But if you zoom this down into a smaller scale, say like your personal healthcare, you can kind of look at these things in that similar way. Civilizations are just larger organisms to some degree. And so, like, if you look at your health, if you decide to eat shitty for 40, 50 years, then you see all the negative repercussions that happen, but not until 50 years happen. And the only way to, like, solve for those things is behaving in a different way 50 years ago or 25 years ago, right? Best case scenario. And so that's kind of, like, how people can kind of conceptualize these things instead of just being like, God, civilization, like, beating me with the head off or something I can't change.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's and it's a it's a very it's a strange problem because what I'm like my the objection I'm getting in my head to what this is talking about is something like the like the nature of progress itself, like the thing the example that I always get to or fall back on is mm-hmm. we solved starvation with obesity <laughs> that. Yeah, the idea, right. <laughs> the idea is that, yeah, we, we're not starving anymore. And the solution that we did, that we created, was to make very cheap food. And it turns out cheap food isn't exactly the healthiest. And so we have a whole bunch of people, instead of the poor starving to death, now the poor are obese.
0: <laughs> right. And so that's they're, they're eating, better- They're eating themselves to death in some sense. It's not good food. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, you, sorry. No, you're,
1: you're good. Go ahead. As I say, you get people who complain about that, like complain about the fact that the poor are overweight and so on, Um, and they're right to, that we should Im- improve the quality of our food. But in context, you have to understand that this is a significantly better problem to have than starving. If only it takes 40 days to starve and it takes years to eat yourself to death.
0: Right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, One of the things I should mention here, I think that's important, is that it's easy to look at this and say, well, all of the stuff in modern society has its own problems, right? Like everything's a double-edged sword. But I would say that living today is obscenely better than, than even a hundred years ago, or, you know, you keep rolling back the clock today's like, it would be better to live with today's problems than it would be to live with a hundred years ago's problems. Oh, yeah. even a hundred years ago, we don't have, you know, food is stored on ice blocks still. And yeah. everybody has a horse and carriage only if you're super rich. Um. And so the, the point I'm making is that what we have today is we have to realize that it's like I'm going to use a Spider-Man quote. I don't mean to use it, but it's with great power comes great responsibility. Each of us has the responsibility to use the technologies and the advances we have, but it's but nobody's going to tell you how to live. In some sense, like it's it's within your realm of influence to manage yourself, whatever that looks like. Yeah. And but it was like, but if we all manage ourselves well, that's how we propel civilization. To better places, hmm.
1: yeah, I totally, I totally agree. <laughs> and it's not a perspective that you need. Uh, people are going to object to the idea that it's better to live now than in the past, which is, it's just kind of a strange thing. Uh, I think that part of the reason that they'll react that way is because they think that saying that that things are better now than they had once been is an excuse not to progress and that that's how they hear that. That when I say, for example, um, when people are talking about racial politics, when I say that um, things are clearly better for black Americans now than they were 100 years ago, which is fat. there's no way around that. That is a fact. Uh, they will object because they think They think that what the only reason you would say that is to dismiss their arguments about improving black lives now. And that is not necessarily the case. It is a good buffer against, uh, resentment and provides a certain amount of, uh, perspective, right? And and it opens a door for gratitude and a sophisticated kind sophisticated kind of gratitude that is balanced with the ever um uh improving that that progressive mindset that you still want to improve right and you can be still and you can have gratitude right these things are not in opposition with each other you can yeah have gratitude and you can recognize the problems of today and decide and decide to progress
0: yeah I mean, civilizations and cultures are always in beta, to use a software term. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like there's that. no such, like, well, there's no such thing as it's like never a finite product, uh, like in some sense. Like there's, it's always in flux and it's always in some places, right? There's pockets all around the world where it's like, well, you know, North Korea's got some version of this software that's not so great. And then, you know, you go to France or you go to, you know, yeah, South America or Brazil, right? Like everywhere has its own version of it. It's only until you take like a snapshot of it to see where we're at, you know, in the year 2022, yeah. but it's never stagnant in the sense that it's like, well, this is as far as we'll ever go. <laughs> Cause that's just never happening. We can't, we're, we're not a yeah. species that sits <laughs> to sit still.
1: And deposit some place where it's good. Like it's done. Like you've com- nice job. We've completed civilization. Uh, is to posit a heaven and there yeah, are okay. utopia and that's a dangerous thing to do because once you have some perfect civilization what wouldn't you sacrifice for that right well how what number of eggs isn't worth that omelet <laughs> right which is and so you justify an unnumber untold number of atrocities uh in positing a right. utopia,
0: like the means time. to the end yeah
1: and so you have to have a an incremental view of history, that things improve slowly and that that's okay because you don't want to bite off more than you can chew, right? Mm-hmm. You'll just be overwhelmed. You have to do this one little piece at a time and move forward. That's not sexy and nobody's gets super excited <laughs> about that.
0: Nope. <laughs> it's like cleaning up your room. That's not sexy either. But no. it, it's actually funny you brought this up. Um, I was listening to Breaking Points earlier today. Uh, Sagar brought up a point about like history and he was talking about um, he referenced uh, uh, Genghis Khan and how like when people zoom out in history and be like well look at all the good the Mongols did they they unified most of China and they they were able to establish trade routes and all this stuff but then when you stop and say wait a minute at what cost you realize that it cost like 10 million people. And there were different battles where there was so much blood and human, human remains that it was soaked for days with (laughs) humans who had been slaughtered. So it's like, like, let's not take a rosy eyed view of history when, when at what cost certain advances happened, you know, for humanity, like some total. Like it, yeah. like not all like not all of this is going to sound good.
1: Yeah, Even and though it ha- it happened. Better. Yes, there these things come at an incredible cost, and you the part of the reason that incremental change is good is because it isn't revolutionary. They're little revolutions instead of massive revolutions, because massive right. revolutions always are violent hmm. and. You might say, looking back a thousand years, oh, good, Genghis Khan opened up a trade route. But you're right to point out that that cost a lot of lives. And so, if what you want is for the most good for the most people over the longest period of time, then the best you can do is incremental change at the very least to avoid incredible suffering for many people. Right. For gains that will probably not be sustained anyway. Genghis Khan's empire fell.
0: (laughs) Yeah (laughs) I think think, um,
1: Little parts off to
0: his sons And then they all just kind of dissolved I mean, the infighting that happened after that I think if anyone's curious about this level of history Go watch Dan Collins Hardcore History Or listen, rather He is one of the best Hell yeah Okay, let's move forward
1: Yep So, all right, Stealing resources from others is not a permanent solution Because Conquest 2 has serious costs Imperial overreach has spelled the downfall of many empires. Even peaceful trade provides no escape from biophysical limits. To get resources from others, you must normally give something valuable in return, either resources themselves or goods and services that depend ultimately on resources. In short, on a finite planet, you cannot grow forever or violate the laws of, of physics. If you use renewable resources faster than they can regenerate, they will dwindle and ultimately disappear. If you produce waste faster than they can, then they can be rendered harmless. They will poison you. And if you use non-renewable resources to fuel current consumption, they will eventually run out. Of course, the ultimate limits are rarely reached because diminishing returns on ecological exploitation and extraction set in well before then. Technology and good management can forestall the day of ecological reckoning, but not indefinitely. Okay. So the part about overreach is really important. So you, what's his name? P? Is it Peter Zion? The uh, geopolitical commentator that I sent you that. Let me pull it up. Yeah. I think
0: it is. It's. Uh,
1: let's see. Yeah, Peter yep. Z E I H A N Zion. Peter Zion. Maybe. Okay, so he's talking, talking, talking about, about what's going on <laughs> with Russia. He's a geopolitical analyst. Um, talking about what's going on with Russia and that Russia having a, has been having a long dwindling collapse um, of their human resources. So that's their population, um, as well as some natural resources and so on, and that. Part of what they've been trying to do, part of what the Ukraine war is, is this overreach, is this expansion to make up for the loss of ecological resources that they have. And they're desperate, and they know that they're desperate, and that it's something like within the next five years, um, they're going to lose a huge portion of their draftable population because they're going to get too old. So they're like, if we're going to expand, we have to do it right now because we're about to run out of people. So that explains part of what's going on here is that Russia is on the slow decline and they know it and they're panicking and they pushed into Ukraine to start to get toward some of the things that they need to sustain themselves. Um, that's an example of this imperial overreach um, that Awfuls is talking about. Interesting. So that's pretty
0: wild. Oh, this is great. Okay, so
1: to make matters worse, it is not. Resources in general that matter for natural processes are governed by a basic ecological principle called the law of the minimum. Thus the factor in least supply is controlling. For example, to grow cereals, take soil, seeds, fertilizer, and water, as well as labor. Not only must all these factors of production be present for there to be a crop, but they must be present in the right quality or proportion. Thin soils or poor seeds will stunt crop growth, even if all the other factors are present in abundance. Thus, some resources are more critical for civilization than others. Okay. That's, um, same guy, Peter Zion talked about fertilizer in China and how their soil is not good. Their quality is crap. So they have to produce a whole ton of fertilizer. And for the most part, they do an okay, they do okay at at that. Um, but, uh, I think he said that, I hope I get this right, that the things that they need to produce some of this fertilizer are imported.
0: So they're dependent yeah. in other ways. They they don't produce a lot of the fundamentals of the of what it takes to run a well-functioning civilization. Same thing he said with most of the developing world is they don't they're not producers of like the quote unquote building blocks of a functioning society. Like fertilizers or um the seeds or having the soil quality to do this. You know what I mean? It's the simple things that people get hung up on because it's like, if your supply chain dries up, I mean, that's a, that's a lesson we've all learned. I mean, I feel like more people in, in the layman's group know more about supply chain now than they've ever had.
1: <laughs> oh yeah.
0: It's pretty wild. And that, and that whole,
1: th- so he has a, we should post this other podcast too in the, in the notes or whatever, but he talks about, um, the African swine fever, that it's this disease that went around China, and was killing a bunch of their pigs. Mm-hmm. And after it did, uh, China thought it would be easier, cheaper to instead of because a bunch of farms went under, they lost all their pigs, they collapsed. Instead of um, throwing money at those farms, they just subsidized new farmers. Said, get after it, young bucks. Like you can handle this. (laughs) Um, What ended up happening is that they, they, it was probably cheaper, but not in the long run because these guys don't have the experience that the old farmers had, and so their their pigs are in bad like sanitary conditions, and as a result, are at high risk for another wave of the African swine fever and they're anticipating that happening again in china so there'll be another wiping out of of uh, their pigs at the same time
0: another example of the root cause not addressing the root cause
1: <laughs> yeah right they they didn't for this is one of these problems that are that dictatorships have is that they can just go oh we'll just do this where the market in some sense would find an organic solution it would work around it you'd have probably some of the larger farms taking over um, supply uh, and providing that and filling in the vacuum that all the smaller farms made and all that. Um, but instead of letting it organically occur, they imposed a government idea like some genius in a boardroom thought, well, we'll just do this because it's cheaper in the bottom line. And then sure enough, they just set themselves up for failure because they don't know. This is why I, I don't like centralized. Um, right. Government, I don't like centralized decision making of any kind, because the guy then who's at the center ends up being so far removed from the day-to-day uh workings of the people on the periphery that he's just totally unequipped to make a decision because yeah. he doesn't have the facts on the ground like the guy the 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 hog farmer does.
0: Right. He he's the one who knows what it's like to be the hog farmer and seeing this disease ravage the herds. Yeah. And he would have the best idea to help mitigate that, or at least the very least, you should be helping smooth out the rough I was gonna make a C analogy, but it doesn't work. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Smooth out the speed bumps basically for, for something like that. It's nuts. It's a terrible idea. They, they, they did it for a little
1: while in Afghanistan. Oh, who was it? I forget which medal of honor recipient it was, a Marine. Um, but he ended up being in a situation where they couldn't get artillery to a bunch of guys who are pinned down and getting killed. Um, yeah. he just charged out there and broke all the rules, but the reason that they couldn't get artillery to these guys and the reason that they weren't allowed, like he actually just disobeyed commands and went out and go and saved all these dudes that's it he didn't save all of them but he brought a bunch of as many as he came yeah um um, the reason that he was breaking the rules on that is because at that time they had been so concerned about civilian deaths that they in kind of a political panic centralized a bunch of the power they said okay you guys keep making mistakes well now some general or something has to okay this before you can do it but that centralized the decision-making, and when things got tough and chaotic and people didn't quite know what was going on and it's an emergency, it took forever to make a decision about this because it has to go right. every fucking link on that chain of command before they can finally just do what had needed to be done what everybody knew needed to be done from the outset. And people died because they said centralize the command too much. Yep. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Now, obviously, you can't, in the opposite extreme and have no centralized command at all or no no command at all, right? Where it's, it's right. everybody <laughs> and you're just running around like chaotic chickens with their head cut off. But you need some balance here and to centralize too much, you end up with um, a complete inability to really, you just make things worse. Everything you do, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think that's a huge thing we have to relearn in the coming time period is learning how to, how to, create decentralization within different regions so that they can feel empowered to make the best decisions because there's I feel like there's a lot of um kicking and screaming around that right now <laughs> yeah
1: okay continuing on uh civilization as a system uh, its basic mode is overshoot and collapse okay so mm. yeah Um, That is, it tends to continue developing well beyond the point of ecological sense, as well as economic sense in many cases, although that is another story. In doing so, it degrades or exhausts ecological resources that are critical for its long-term survival. What ecologists call the carrying capacity is eroded. When the inevitable day of reckoning arrives, the civilization therefore experiences decline or even collapse until it comes into balance with the remaining impoverished resource base. That's a form of lie. That's pretty interesting. So that, so the, the idea that that's a lie, right, is that you're pretending, you're acting as if you have resources you don't have. Right, so you could say that the reason that civilizations collapse is because their uh, decadence is founded on bullshit. Yeah. Right, that actually the reason civilizations end isn't because, just just because they've, Um, exhausted their resources, but because they're unwilling to recognize when it is that they've exhausted those resources. So that's pretty interesting. Um, If we ask why civilizations have consistently fallen into this trap, the answer is multifaceted. Obviously, sheer ignorance is one reason. The signs of overdevelopment are ignored until too late, so that's a lie. So humanity only discovers the error of its ecological ways in retrospect. But there are more specific causes. Leaving the human element aside for now, one important part of the answer is that ecological costs are not reflected in economic transitions, transactions, excuse me. For instance, if 10 sheep are bartered for one log, the fact that the sheep have, may have contributed to desert, desertification. That's I'm, so making things into a desert through overgrazing or that the tree represents ecological capital, not just the cost of felling uh, the tree and transporting a log is not reflected in the transaction. Thus, a market failure has occurred. The prices do not represent physical reality. This failure is particularly egregious in the case of the log. For not only is the true value of an asset that took a century or more to produce not realized, but capital has been liquidated to produce current income. Okay, that's really interesting, right? Because the idea there is that um, what this is the problem with Marxism. Because Marx uh, had a... One of the problems with Marxism. Marx had a labor theory of value. So he thought that all value came from labor. Um, that like the value of the tree came from my, the effort that I put into cutting it down, into carving it up, into turning it into a chair, right? So you buy the chair and what you're giving me money for is the all the labor that I put into that. And it's true that you are paying for the labor, but that's not all you're paying for, which is what their point with um, William Opals is pointing out here, is that the tree took 100 years to grow. Uh, the no. tree was preserving the soil, for example, stopping um, landslides because of the roots. It, there's a whole bunch of other things that are be taking that you're not taking into account. And so the there's a what do you call it? Um, there's a market failure. And that market failure is that the the cost that you're paying for that tree is not reflective of its value because you're not able to recognize the value of the tree in some sense in and of itself.
0: Right. There's the hidden value that, that, that you just care about the, the wood of, you know, the actual physical material, but not the intangible things that you don't realize.
1: Yeah. Which is, yeah,
0: that's fascinating. Okay. So, so
1: here we go. Okay. A money economy takes the disconnection and therefore the failure one step further. The higher the level of economic development, the more money tends to become an abstraction rather than a counter for something concrete. Thus, the economy can boom as the ecology disintegrates. This is particularly true Hmm. if the society resorts to currency debasement or loose credit as a way to evade encroaching physical limits and foster an artificial prosperity. For then, the economy becomes completely unhinged from the concrete ecological reality, overshoot and collapse as the inevitable result. So hmm. also very interesting. So simultaneously of the market failure that you're mispricing things, but then your money is becoming more abstract. So it's being snipped from its concrete. So it'd be like, we left the gold currency under Nixon. Or the, the gold standard, right? Because gold used to be used as um, a measure for the value of cash. And in some sense, what you really had wasn't cash. You had gold. It was just the cash was a representative. So you didn't have to carry bricks of gold around. Right? <laughs> Not very
0: transportable.
1: <laughs> right. And now and gold is a really good measure of value because it's pure right? So it doesn't, it's not, it's not mixed in with other stuff. So that allows for you to really, so it's just gold, right? You don't have to start like picking apart atoms to figure out how much of something you have. It's just gold, right? Um, but in addition, uh, it's rare. So that scarcity gives a certain amount of value, right? Yep. Um, but when we snapped that and we cut that line down to reality, our money only has value because we say that it has value.
0: Right, we, we all agree, <laughs> <in> the, different- <laughs> the government yeah. says it has a certain a certain dollar value, and then it's also bought in by the world economy. Yeah. It is what also keeps it stable to some degree.
1: Right, and now we can go even more abstract. But I think that this might be a very it's a da- is a different thing, like Bitcoin. Yeah, crazy abstract, right? Because it has no connect. It's just ones and zeros in some sense but there's a sort of infinite scarcity thing that goes on with Bitcoin, um, which is the idea that gold, if a meteorite that was made out of gold landed on Earth, then suddenly every currency that had been based on the gold standard would collapse right? if there was <laughs> gold, right? Or if we hit some vein of gold that was just like some huge mine and suddenly there's way more gold than we ever thought there was, now you're screwed. But what you can do with Bitcoin is basically have just set in hard limits and just be like, there will never be any more than this, period. Yeah. And it will never change. And there's no way to get around it, assuming that we don't create technologies that can break into the blockchain and all this. But um, it's actually been tested a lot, so it seems to be pretty good.
0: Yeah. I mean, the blockchain right. seems like a good idea. Whether or not the whole crypto thing is going to take over is up too much debate. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of people are using it not as really currency yet because I don't know. I think everyone's hesitant to to do that. And there's other issues around it. Like you're saying, the abstraction part is it's like, well, what happens if we shut off the servers that are storing those things, right? Um, then, poof.
1: It goes have, away. Well, you lose your password. You <laughs> Like the guys that have had like, like 30 million. million. <laughs> right. In Bitcoin, they just don't have their password anymore. And they're like, shit. Can you imagine how unbelievably
0: there, there are some there are some stories of like guys who had bought like their first like they had one Bitcoin stored on a wallet somewhere on uh, like a computer they weren't using and then all of a sudden it blew up and he, he was like, I can't get it on my account. And there a lot of those things are locked by like time sensitive, like if you get your password wrong X amount of times, then it deletes it. So you could literally throw away millions of dollars because you forgot your password
1: kind oh, of thing. God.
0: Right, exactly. And like that's but that's the thing. It's like this is also tying back into the decentralization thing. Is Bitcoin and crypto is a decentralization of economics where it doesn't require a federal bank or a go- global bank system to function. It's it's got the the backing of the internet and the interconnection of people buying into the networks as represented by the coins themselves. Right. But when you have these things, there's no checks and balances so that when there is human error involved or scams, you're not protected. There's no one who's going to, there's no Bitcoin police that are going to be like, we're going to get your money back. No one's going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the, so that's the risk you, you, you run when you hyper-decentralize.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's the, the running around. Everybody's on their own thing that's the opposite of the the wild west again (laughs) of course you can do the opposite this is what scares me more than bitcoin like i could imagine bitcoin being useful in some ways and not useful in others maybe as like a medium um for international travel or something like this um but what freaks me out uh is the i think it's government centralized currency oh yeah you mentioned this in, in uh the eu right is, is they were talking yeah. about this. And they're talking about in the U.S. And I can't remember if it's actually called government. Let me. Can I look this up? Um, that, that
0: wasn't. Who is was that guy who was on Rogan? You talked about this. Uh, because he was talking about the radicals in in
1: Europe. Yeah, it was um central bank digital currency. Here we go. Generally defined as a digital liability of the central bank that is widely available to the general public. Okay, so I'm on the um, Federal Reserve website, central bank digital currency. Mm -hmm. While the Federal Reserve has made no decisions on whether to pursue or implement a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, we have been exploring the potential benefits and risks of CBDCs. From a variety of angles, including through technological research and experimentation, our key focus is on whether and how a CBDC could improve on an already safe and efficient U.S. domestic payment system. And defined as a digital liability of a central bank that is widely available to the general public. Okay, a lot of this is pretty boring. Just jargon. Make digital. It let you make digital payments it's Bitcoin, but backed by the Federal Reserve.
0: Right. It's, it's, Bitcoin. uh, isn't it like USD coin or something like that? Does like a US, it's like a US Bitcoin, Bitcoin. something like that. I forget what it was. I know China had one too for a little while.
1: The thing that freaks me out about that is that, um, if you're a state dissident, then you're fucked. Right. If you get, you get into Orwellian territory rather quickly. They can just, they, you don't have, like if I have cash on me, they have to arrest me to take the cash, right? But mm-hmm. if my money is all um, all digital, it's all like Bitcoin, but they the central government has control over this thing, they can just turn it off. Right. Like literally, you could just turn it off. And so you get a journalist who writes something terrible about the current <laughs> the current administration and they say this guy's been too loud too
0: often and it's getting too much traction. Boop. It's like oh i want to go buy milk and eggs sir you're out of money what what do you mean you're out of money
1: <laughs> yeah and thank god the department of homeland securities um misinformation board which was going was going to be in enforcement board right to, to try to get yeah. misinformation, um was disbanded uh bec- which had the woman that was the head of it, it was ridiculous. Doing fucking <laughs> like singing show tunes on YouTube is absurd. Um uh, but they absurd. got that. <laughs> imagine that you have a, a central a centralized currency, a digital currency that you can turn on or on or off and you don't and you have the ability now to screw it. people that are messing with the government. Now uh, you might say that there would be legal issues in place, that they would need a justification, but if you have a misinformation panel that has reinforcement this kind of thing it's homeland security whatever um everybody is giving up misinformation everyone unless you know what the objective truth is which no one knows then the standard by which you would determine or or define misinformation uh isn't there so it's it becomes subjective what is and is not misinformation is subjective right because to make it just a little clearer What is false is dependent on what is true. But if you don't know what's true, then anything you want can be false. And so the government now would have the ability to make any statement you ever say, misinformation, and give them the justification, ostensibly, to turn off all of your income. Not just your income, everything you own, all of the money you've saved, everything, just no access.
0: Right. Like it reminds me of like the people who are like maximalists with like the te- tech of like, everything will be controlled by the blockchain. We don't want that. Like, <laughs> because then you give people root access, quote unquote, to be able to turn off your life. I <laughs> you want a mix, right? Like,
1: <laughs> like, I would think so. Think so. I'm looking at, I'm thinking of nature now, like nature deals in abstractions. Um, in us, right? Because the human brain has layers of increasingly abstract means of expression. So hand gestures, body language, this is all very concrete, but it's actually more abstract than just acting, right? So an animal, right. um, the we'd say the less sophisticated, not um, great apes, uh, animals don't do – all of their action is a concrete, direct meaning, right? They bite something because they're trying to eat it right there's no biting something or like snarling their teeth in a way that's a symbol of expression to tell
0: you the risk here right right like smiling like smiling for a human could be misconstrued by a simpler animal as like showing your teeth and you're angry well we'll we're
1: weird because so okay so here's uh, one touch so a, a lizard just act right That's all that it does everything that there is no break between the action and the meaning of the action okay but wolves when they have a dominance dispute um the losing wolf will lay down and show his neck and then the dominant wolf will bite his neck but not actually bite it just Mm -hmm. to say i win right and i could cut your throat out but i'm not gonna do it right so i'll get back in line and it's a tap out (laughs) It's a tap out that's exactly what it is it's a tap out but notice that that action though concrete in that it's action is more abstract because it doesn't go it's a ritual the wolf doesn't yeah. go through with the actual thing and so hand gestures are our implicit version of this okay so human beings still do this kind of gesture and uh david mcneil is a psychologist who looked at hand gestures, and you found that like they anticipate your phrases in meaning and in time. So the gesture itself has a meaning to it, and it happens right oh, before weird. the words come out because the meaning that you're trying to express bubbles up and comes out as words. It moves up the layers of abstraction in your brain until it pops out as the most abstract language symbols, right? phonetic sound symbols. And then we can make it even more abstract by creating an alphabet. So you don't even have to hear it anymore, right? But these words are still connected to an action, but only at a great distance because the point of the abstracting is so that you can do something without having to do it. (laughs) It's to run a simulation, right? And your dreams are running simulations. They're another layer on top of a layer. Peterson has it set up in Maps of Meaning where it's procedural, so action, episodic, so narrative, thinking through the episodes in your brain and then semantics a so language right and they they're stacked and there's it can be broken down further but that's the idea so nature has these abstractions right there and there's a function to them so it's not that abstraction is necessarily bad but if if you're all talk and no action that's a problem because your abstraction has been snipped from its underlying like the concrete boring, right yeah and so what you might want is if the biological model can be used to talk about the economy, what you might want is to have Bitcoin and a concrete, you would probably want Bitcoin cash and the gold standard. So you have a chain of abstraction,
0: but they never lose their connection. Like, right. They stay you, well, you also want to have just like it's it's be another word for resilience in the system, right? Because if one or more fail you want to be able to have a backup that you can just plug into the system. But like, don't worry guys, it's going to suck, but we've got a, a backup in place. Right. And, and, and that's a first decentralization again, because you don't, because you're not over reliant on one thing. You don't have all your chips on black, right? Like you don't ever want to do that, especially in a civilization scale.
1: Yeah. That's and what's really, okay. So this is really cool too. So, it, it prevents, to some degree, the total collapse of your economy in the same way that um, the overloading of your your system, the human system, um, results in the shutting down of front to back, right and low, right. So yeah. the high level abstract stuff, because it's expensive and it's predicated on everything beneath it, um, it's also fragile, and particular, and very narrow. Um, so if you start to overload the system, so a lot of energy is being used, and then that energy that energy then stops being available to the higher order systems, those start to shut down so that you can use the cheaper, so to speak, systems beneath it while still surviving, right? So it sacrifices the leaves on the tree to preserve the trunk. Okay. Makes sense. Literally the same principle. Yeah. Right, so <laughs> what happens is you can have this is what ecstasy is, not the drug, but though maybe it's the drug too. Um, but <laughs> the experience of like religious ecstasy or sexual ecstasy is a bottom up surge of um, sensory information that's so much, so much sensory information that it overpowers the explicit systems and you over, you lose yourself mm. because the you that you identify as as is a higher order structure resting on top of the rest of the brain. And if you get enough energy being used, enough information that needs to be processed, you can overload that system and fo- lose yourself in the moment. And so you can do the same thing with the economy again. Uh-oh, something really drastic has changed. Bang. Okay, it's really expensive to maintain Bitcoin, but if we sh- if we transfer that Bitcoin down to cash, then we can turn all of that off Preserve all the uh, you d- redirect that energy to preserving the system and keeping it surviving until we can later fix the problem and turn it all back on. Right. Fail safe mechanisms. Right. I mean, we're definitely not fucking set up to do this. No, not at um, all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's the idea. That's what yeah. it looks like you guys to me. I mean that's what you'd want to do if you're just building anything. Like you want redundancy in everything. And like like we you have this happen all the time in jobs or in different places where you have one person who's the single point of failure. And then whenever something bad happens, like well what happened? It's like, well, Bob was drunk at, you know, he had a rough day and wasn't doing his A game. And all of a sudden you find out, oh, be, because that person was around or not able to, you know, perform correctly, I mean, even Chernobyl failed like this, where mm-hmm. you had a manager who sucked. And then, <laughs> and then they had an old system on top of that, that failed. And they had multiple failures across the board that they weren't corrected for. Yep. And then it goes, boom. And then that I shoots the entire nuclear industry in, in the foot because people have bad ideas around <laughs> nuclear catastrophe because they have one poster child to hang up and say, well, well, That's why we don't do that when it's wrong because it's perception over reality. Hmm. Okay. Last
1: paragraph. It all seems so obvious once we step back and focus on the relation between the edifice of civilization and its ecological foundation. Of course, resources are limited. Of course, we cannot violate limits with impunity. Of course, we cannot indefinitely consume natural capital. Yet, history is littered with the corpses of civilizations that lived beyond their ecological means and paid the price. Why is this so? The answer is complex, and we shall deal with the psychological and sociological aspects later. But one major reason is that the human mind tends to overlook the consequences of continuous growth. Let us therefore explore the second biophysical limit confronting civilization, the exponential function. Then it goes in the second chapter. So there we go. We finished a chapter. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> if I mean, this is what <laughs> it you should be worried.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the exponential function is just an interesting thing because it reminds me of the pandemic because everyone was panicking about that. Um, and, the rate of, what was it? The R naught value was what was thrown around a ton. <laughs> Which is just
1: for listeners, explain the exponential function.
0: Yeah, so the exponential function is basically if you have a mathematical number, we'll just use X, and the exponent is the little little number up in the top right corner in the number. Um, And it just basically, once it gets going, it looks like a J curve, where it just goes forever up to infinity so if i'm looking
1: at a graph then from left to right there's a sharp j increase yeah on that graph.
0: and it just goes off to infinity at a, at a ever-increasing rate so two four six uh 16 32 etc cetera, etc cetera. um we'll have a link to into the show notes when this podcast goes live on the other platforms so you'll find it on the website right and that's
1: Something like the Pareto distribution or um, Matthew's principle or um, the idea that as you continue to grow, it becomes easier to grow. And then you keep growing until you've, like you notice in this book, reach your ecological limits in the case of a civilization and kaboom.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've thought about this a lot, right? Like for some reason... Ever since we were, we were little, there's been this like thought that the economy can just grow forever and every business can just, you know, get 2% year over year revenue and all these things, right. Without realizing that we're on a ball of rock and, you know, and with finite all, you know, whatever it is. Right. And so you, you end up having this, like, it just feels so disconnected to reality. Right. Like, I I just don't understand how people can just think that it's not going to, there can't be a finite limit. Like, not everything can scale indefinitely.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's a weird, that's like the, the, these businesses that think that you need to be built on infinite growth. This is, um, Eric Weinstein has talked about this. Um, he, what did he, ego, uh, exponential growth? Something, oh, let me look this up. To... Embedded growth obligations. okay, so mm-hmm. there's structures in the institutions that are predicated on the idea of growth is something like the idea. Um, so egos are structures built into institutions in times of growth that assume growth will continue, and the institution must therefore grow to meet its egos. Where its leaders must lie about the presence of growth. So that's exactly what we're talking about. The compromising of incentives causes institutions to tend towards exploitative or sociopathic behaviors as their leaders face selective pressures to maintain the status quo. Right. Eric first publicly introduced the idea in his first appearance on the Ruben Report on January 6th, 2017. Okay. This is according to uh, the portal, which was his podcast wiki. Wow. Okay.
0: Cool. So that's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's just, there seems to be some sense of like divorcing from reality. And, and I don't know why this phrase keeps, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately, but it's called, uh, it's kind of a buzzword term, but called motivated reasoning. And we all have motivated reasoning for whatever reason, but basically what that means is your behaviors are driven or your, your behaviors and your beliefs are driven by what you believe and a lot of times we end up believing things because we're motivated to believe those things by either our own choices or by choices of what others are asking of us so either spouses bosses um etc you know friends family or otherwise and you see a lot of this kind of in another word for this would be rationalization where you rationalize away these things even though you know they cannot be sustainable you just lie to yourself and say well I do this for X, Y, or Z reason with any, don't tether it to a reality. And then all of a sudden you fall off a cliff like a dodo and you're like, well, why did I land up here? <laughs> Where did I go so long? We're exactly. You divorced yourself from reality. That's what happened.
1: <laughs> it's it like, it's so funny to me because it, the lie really is the a big problem, if not the problem in some sense, but it, the lie is more complicated because it's just, it's more like just any falsity. You're like you don't even have to be lying. insofar as you know, like in, which is to say, actively deceiving, consciously deceiving. Yeah. Um, or, or or remaining consciously ignorant. You don't want to know the answer to the question, right? So you just don't ask ask it. In the Marine Corps, you right. say, um, "Don't ask questions you don't want the answer to."
0: Yep. <laughs> that,
1: so, those that's a common one. Yeah. So it's like, or you could do that. So that's willful. Blindness, willful, willful 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 blindness. blindness yeah um so you have that but all of it boils down to a certain kind of it's a deviation from the nature of reality so that what that suggests is that if what collapses civilizations is that deviation from reality and we have a bunch of reasons why not to deviate or why to deviate from reality to lie to ourselves if wolf- or whatever um, and human beings do this, and that that will, that is actually the thing that slowly and over time as it compounds, results in the collapse of the civilization, and the way to pre- ultimately prevent the collapse of any civilization is something, it's, it's enlightenment for everyone in the civilization, which is to say that insofar as it's possible to be to remove any deceits, to see the world as it is, to experience things without self disillusion. Then you can act in the world in a way it would allow for a civilization to be maintained indefinitely. Yeah. So that's the so there we go, Anzila. If we want our civilization to last indefinitely, we all just have <laughs> to have enlightened.
0: <laughs> oh, let's just go on silent retreats for for years on end. It'll solve all the world's problems. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <I don't> <laughs> oh, oh God! What are you doing? The camera. The
1: camera. <laughs> it's been like randomly zooming in and out. I
0: don't know what the he- it just died on me. <laughs> it's still on. It's, it di- it, it, it's got a little gimbal on it. Hold on, let me. Restarted. It. it just gave up. I'm over here, buddy. Hacked by the government. It got us. It's just died. It was
1: very interesting in what your phone is doing on your lap.
0: I turned my head down. I was tracking my face, and then it's like, where does his face oh. go? Oh. It tracks your face. That's funny. That's yeah. Normally, it's uh, it it's fine, but I don't know what happened.
1: Well, hello, viewers. I hope you're all doing well. This is Feeding Curiosity After Dark. Um, I'm now going to start reading Fifty Shades of Grey. I hope you guys are ready. Um, I'm going to get some red lighting going and really set the mood. I've got a candle on back there. I don't know if you could see it. Hold on. Right there. Perfect. Settle in, everybody. Get a blanket. <laughs> I actually have a story about that, about Fifty Shades of Grey. I'll keep you entertained. When I was deployed in the Marine Corps years and years ago, uh, I was doing security. Okay, So we would sit around in a box, not too much, not very big, maybe 10 feet by 10 feet. And uh, some of these boxes uh, had books there. And so one of these had 50 shades of gray. So I actually read 50 shades of gray, but I didn't read it just like cover to cover. We'd get so bored at the 12 hour out of 16 hours on this post that we would, one guy would read it like, like, like a storybook. So you'd have like five guys sitting like cross-legged and one dude reading 50 shades of gray to them. (laughs) It was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) let's see Well, we've lost Wenzel. That's about it for the conversation, as far as I can tell. Um, maybe we'll keep talking more when he gets back. But I do you want to say I think this went pretty well. I hope that some people, um, I hope it's whoever watched or will watch this in the future, got something out of it. I'm sure this will be turned into a podcast Um in addition to having been a live stream, uh, yeah. Again, the book is Immoderate Greatness Why Civilizations Fail. Highly recommend it. Uh, all right, thanks for coming.